Welcome to The Uncertain Artist, where each week we discuss the highs and lows of forging a life in the arts, specifically the collaborative arts, and mostly here in Seattle. Our starting point each week is an episode of the YouTube show, The Uncertain Detective, which was created by me, Greg Lashow, and I'm joined by our writing and story consultant, Joe Guppy. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about episode 19, which is from season two. Mm. And uh, we'll be talking about it with our special guest who has a role in that episode, Ezra Dickinson. Did you get a chance to rewatch the episode, Joe? I did, Greg. In fact, I enjoyed it so much, I watched it twice. Oh, that's good. How about, how about you? Did you get a chance to take a look? Uh, well, I got the chance, but I didn't do it. Um, hmm. Now, I know last time I told you that I have a problem watching my stuff, and I said it's because I'm afraid something will go wrong, which I'm sure seemed weird. But in thinking about it since last time, Every time I screen something, if I happen to be in the audience, something does go wrong. Wow. Um, so I'll tell you one specific mm -hmm. nightmare. Uh, so years ago, Philip Glass was touring with Glass on Film. He, he and his ensemble would play music live to um, uh, from the score film scores mm -hmm. he'd done. I remember and, that when yeah, he came Yeah, it was at that. the Paramount. Yeah. And he commissioned a number of... Uh, well-known, excellent filmmakers to create films uh, just for the event. And then I was also commissioned by the Seattle International Film Festival to make something uh, as the token unknown, uh, not-so-great filmmaker. Um, so we, we, we made this film that I actually loved. We went out to Eastern Oregon and shot it in 35-millimeter, uh, and mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, you know, it was a special thing, and uh, we played it. And, uh, you know, it went okay. And um, the folks down at the American Cinematheque, the Egyptian theater in, in uh, Hollywood, asked if they could play it as a short before some indie feature that they were playing. Mm. So, sure, I went down there, full house. Nobody's there to see <laughs> my film. It's all for the indie film. Mm. And um, so on 35 millimeter, we had, we'd been given a budget of $500. So... When it came time to show it without Philip Glass there, <laughs> I don't think I asked him to come and play. Um, I didn't have a soundtrack, and I didn't have the money to marry the sound to the picture. So I went and bought a CD of Koyaanisqatsi, which is where the music was from. Sure. And uh, told the projectionist at the uh, Egyptian, start the CD, and then exactly 2.5 seconds after the music begins, start the film so mm -hmm. it can be in sync. Mm-hmm. 2.5 seconds so i go and take my seat the thing starts he starts it perfectly and about a minute in the cd starts to skip and repeat <laughs> now if you know philip glass's music <laughs> i was the only one who was aware that the thing was repeating over and over and i was just just dissolved in absolute sweat and tears it was just a horrifying experience mm. and then miracle of miracles about 20 seconds before the end it, it skipped back to the end somehow i don't know if the projection is like nudged it or something and it ended better than it would have ended if he mm. if, if it had started at the right mm. time anyway mm. that kind of thing happens so, all so the that's time. how you develop this phobia about that watching your one of one many reasons yeah. so you're uh, concerned that if you're sitting in your house watching your computer on youtube <laughs> That something will go wrong if you watch episode 19. I'm pretty sure. You think Ezra Dickinson might trip during that yeah, episode? Exactly. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, exactly. That could happen. Yeah. Okay. Especially if someone were there with me, then that would certainly oh. happen. But anyway, what, what's, uh, I mean, what's something nice about episode 19? Oh yeah. Um, well, I think what I what I liked about it, uh, I I will have to say I, I loved Ezra's uh, performance as a as a as a dancer and yeah. uh, and the suit he was wearing. Was oh yeah, that's special. Fantastic. Maybe we'll get a photo um, of that up for the. But yes, let's definitely do that. Uh, but um, as far as the big picture goes, I really enjoyed uh, how uh, the. The family's uh, difficulties were mirrored in the art, which I think is one of the major attractions of the Uncertain Detective. We see your family, you and your family, working things out, or things come into your lives, and then it comes into the series. So in this particular case, you and uh, Megan are going to couples counseling, and he talks about oh, yeah. he talks about uh, the possibility that you have a zombie relationship. A zombie relationship. A zombie relationship is one that used to be alive but has fallen into a kind of suspended state it's neither dead nor alive and you can't go with the flow because there is no flow 
I'm not making the memories be zombies because of anything that's going on in my marriage. My show's not a reflection of my personal life. It's fiction. I just think maybe zombies equals more subscribers. And then, of course, in the episode of The Uncertain Detective, we have uh, zombies are going to be part of, part of it. Yeah, I had to get zombies in in an effort to up our audience a little bit. That's your right. Um, when you say well, that, too. I, 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 so I'm super glad to hear that because one of the reasons I'm excited that Ezra's here is... Uh, well, let me introduce. Hi, Ezra. <laughs> hey, Greg. So our hey, guest Joe. today hey. is Ezra Dickinson. Um, and among the many reasons that I'm excited you're here is that you uh, have done work in relation to family yourself um, in a really interesting way. So let me just say I'm a big fan. Thank uh, you. In addition to having worked with you a number of times, I've seen a number of your pieces, and they're just phenomenal. Thanks. And, uh, uh special just you know your own thing no one else does what you do um so let's start i mean talk a little bit of, of, about how you came to be the artist that you are like are you from around here uh, how did you yeah i am get into this i i grew up in bellingham and i think i moved to seattle <clears throat> maybe when i was about 13 14 i oh, think wow. my father moved here first and then my mother moved here second um, I am the artist that I am because of my parents, because of their eccentricities and their love. Um, you know, everybody has failings of some sort, large, small, but all of those things shape me. Um, and I think now as an adult artist, um, I'm trying to unpack those relationships, how they've changed, how they've shifted how they sit in the societal consciousness, you know, like shared relationships, shared experiences. Um, and I think as time has gone by as an artist, I find myself gravitating towards um, the difficult conversations, the things that strike it, something that's uh, close to truth, if not holy truth. So you, I'm guessing, I don't know, started out in the dance world is that right pretty much and i'm saying that only because anyone who's seen you move is pretty stunned by what an amazing dancer you are and i'm married to a choreographer dancer and um everyone wants you wanted you to be you know to dance with them and megan got to have you and uh, uh, collaborate um but so how how did that start out i mean did you start taking classes did you go to school for it i mean how you're obviously you have natural talent but just as obviously you're trained well my mother was a dance teacher and um she initiated me going into dance classes uh i think i started with some small kind of like local dance schools i think nancy white's school of ballet in mm -hmm. bellingham was my first dance school and maybe like four or five wow um I think that uh, I went to maybe one or two other small regional schools before I started to commute to Seattle to uh, take classes regularly at Pacific Northwest Ballet. Oh, okay. Uh, I went all through that program. Who were your teachers? At Pacific Northwest yeah. Ballet. Many teachers. Uh, Kent Stoll, Francia Russell, Bruce Wells, uh, Abby Siegel, um, Lynn Short, uh, Cabby Mitchell. Oh, wow. Great, um, great teachers, yeah. A whole bunch of other people. I'm ashamed to forget their names, but many names come and go out of our heads on a regular basis. <laughs> um, I spent two years in the professional division there, and then I, somewhere a few years prior to that, I was starting to get an interest in uh, other forms of dance outside of classical ballet. I think my own pathway as a short male in classical ballet was somewhat tumultuous. Mm. So uh, I started to broaden myself. I think some of my teachers, Sonia Dawkins, uh, pushed me towards also uh, Sarah DeLuise too in, in my like uh, flamenco class. Um, these were people that kind of saw that I was interested in things beyond ballet because not every student in that place is, you know, um, ballet centric, you know, some, some are willing to go beyond. 
And this is the 2000s? Yeah, I think uh, I was kind of trying to figure out what my next steps were in the early 2000s. I think I ended up leaving PNB after two years in the professional division uh, to go and get a degree in choreography from Cornish. Mm. Oh, okay. So at Cornish, your teachers were um, Wade? Wade Madsen, uh, Pat Hahn, um, Amy Lejean, uh Meg Fox. So you were really exposed to a pretty good di diversity of styles and yeah yeah and inside of that too i leveraged my experience at pnb as a way to kind of jumpstart myself being able to get into other departments at cornish too so out of my own department nice. and into as many others as i could and my awareness of the dance scene in seattle is kind of predates that because i used to do a lot of stuff and on the boards and part of getting older is that you think falsely i think that uh, it's not as great as it used to be <laughs> yeah. and it just means you're not as connected as you used to be mm -hmm. um but were you able to find ripe opportunities to to explore and collaborate with others or was it slim pickings i found opportunities many opportunities sought me out um i think making the choice that i did of kind of leaving a pre-professional professional pathway from PNB and choosing to go to college was a slightly rarer choice. And because I did that, um, I opened up all these doorways to more contemporary artists working in the city and the region um, to meet me and get exposed to me through college. Um, performing with friends, having contact with local regional choreographers getting cast in their work um, put me on their radar at a pretty young age going into college um, and it just kind of snowballed from there i think uh collaborations relationships grew out of that in many forms. did you say yes to everything or did you say no to some things at the start i think i nearly said yes to everything I would try my best to uh, be very methodical in my scheduling and my like kind of negotiating of all of it. But I said, I said yes to as much as I physically could. And I came to know you through Megan Murphy, my wife, who's the star of our show, um, who collaborated with you probably beginning, I'm, I don't know, guessing 2000 and. 13, 14, something, maybe like that? Yeah, it could be as early as maybe like 11 or 12. Okay, so how did that come, like, t tell me a little bit about, like, did you just say yes, or did you rehearse a little and then say yes? Like, how did how did that fit, What you know, come about? And then it, it looked like a great fit, but was it? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm trying to recall if I can remember our first kind of interaction in the rehearsal space, and it's not coming to mind right now. I just remember stepping into uh, a, fi a family dynamic um, amongst all of us uh, and just being kind of welcomed into that space. You know, it's, it's chaos, it's love, it's complication, um, but also it's kind of like methodical approach to uh, build something and, and make something, which has always been interesting to me. So know? Megan builds her work, and I, when I would collaborate with her, we would build our work almost exclusively from within rehearsal, so we weren't coming into rehearsal with scenes or do this, do that. It was all generate generative art, right? So generated from the people in the room. Um, and uh, if, if I recall the first show, we also had our son Charlie in there so yeah specifically family uh as well as the greater family of our collaborators um what were we like to work with i mean i i know what we were like to work with in the 90s uh and it was difficult um there was just a, a lot of stress a lot of tension and a lot of working out of who was doing what and i think we got better but you might be here to disabuse me of that <laughs> um you know, I would say that it was it was an environment that I was okay being in. Um, 
there have definitely been environments that I am not okay being in. And that doesn't mean that an environment that I'm okay being in doesn't have chaos inside of it, doesn't have drama inside of it, doesn't have conflict inside of it. I think that we were working in a lot of ways, if not entirely, from a Chekhov book. And yeah, our source text was was Three Sisters. Yeah, yeah so it felt like it was uh, appropriate to the source text to be investigating kind of all of our... Uh, oh, that's cool. Are just like needs and and impulses in inside of our kind of like ego brain, you know, for better or worse. Yeah, yeah. And so that they just went hand in hand with each other. And because I was okay being there, because it didn't feel like any anything was ill will. It didn't feel like anything was personal or, or attacks. It, that was one thing that I always appreciated was how kind of in the moment it was. Nothing was was deep and and pointed at anybody's heart, you know. That's cool. You know, I, I have a general question because I'm not familiar with that particular piece, but um, I was just thinking about whether you think there's a, is there kind of a Northwest sensibility of, of, of dance? And I'm just thinking of commonalities between Wade Manson, Wade Madsen and the stuff I've seen of yours and, and, um, and Megan's and, and also I'm thinking of like 33 feigning spells, which I don't know. Did, did you work with them? Um, I worked with Dana and I worked with Peggy. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that seemed to ring a bell. But to me, there's sort of a, a whimsical quality, um, uh, um, a, a smartness, a subtlety, and it actually, honestly, is kind of like the uncertain detective. And I, I don't know if that's something that's in this in this community, uh, in this specific community of artists, something to do with Seattle or the Pacific Northwest. Uh, anyway, that's that's a lot of a lot. That's a long question. Uh, what's your What do you think? Well, um, I think that there is this, maybe in a way, a hope or attempt to try and have the everyday of our life become uh, the artistic product in some way so that we don't have to work any extra. We can put a camera on us in some way and maybe we don't need mm -hmm. all of it, but peel back a few of the layers and take a few pieces here and there. All of the relationships, all of the dynamics are already existing. And it's just a matter of editing them into things that you find satisfying mm -hmm. and possibly follow a narrative that maybe coincides with what is actually happening in your life or maybe takes turns that for one reason or another, you don't feel like your life has the liberty to take. Mm-hmm. I just remembered an image I had years ago, it may have been a dream or something, I'm not sure. But I'm I'm in a big loft, like rehearsal space loft, and I'm painting on a canvas, which I don't do. And everything that's happening around me is kind of coming into me and then out my hand and onto the canvas. It was such a, it must have been a dream. I woke up, I just thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, that would be a good way to live. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Um... We we want to play as artists, you know, maybe we play with difficult subjects. Mm -hmm. Maybe we play with things that are very um, present to us from childhood. Maybe we play with a whole myriad of other things, but it's an attempt to play. So maybe a Northwest sensibility is us as artists, as creatives, trying to just remember to play. You know, I was just going to say the playful seems to be a really good word to get hold of what I'm what I'm talking about, that sense I, I'm yes. talking about. Yes. So for various reasons, it's hard to get to play. I mean, if you're five, it's not so hard unless it's bedtime. We have to remind ourselves. Is that is that your main blocker in in getting to the play world is that you forget and then you have to remind yourself or is it? I don't Question forget mark. very much. Yeah, I didn't think <laughs> you did. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I uh, I spend a lot of time really trying to do my best uh, to be a child as a as an adult, you know, in the best possible ways. Mm -hmm. uh, imagination, um, openness, uh, caring, trying not to be filled with judgment, you know, 
for others, for self. It's all, it's all daily kind of mantras, processes. Some are conscious and many are unconscious, but just trying to remember to play, trying to remember to be here and, and allow it, say yes to it. Remember almost in the sense of reconnect to something you did know for sure when you were a kid. And to me, that's one of the, that's like the cool struggle of trying to be an artist is, so here's a story. Um, my youngest, Charlie, you know well, mm -hmm. and is in the scene uh, that we will we'll listen to in a little bit. Um, uh, he was uh, with his best friend, Lucia. They were over, uh, I was making him a snack. Maybe they were four or five. And I go to pour the juice and I realize with horror, I have two different colored cups. This is going to be a problem. So I bring the, the cups and set them down. And Charlie says, I want the blue cup. And Lucia says, I want the blue cup. And I yell, it doesn't matter what color it is. And they both froze and looked at me <laughs> like I was an idiot. And one of them said, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, of course, like what could be more important? Anyway, I've always thought like the difficulty of being an artist is that you have to wake up or you, the, the cool thing is that you get to wake up every day and try to remember what you used to know um, and try to reconnect because it doesn't stay with you overnight. Like, to try to reconnect with the fact that it does matter what color yeah. the cup is. Yeah. For yeah. example, yeah. 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 I think of that. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I, I know that you've insisted that we drink out of the uncertain detective yeah. uh, cups. Our uh, Truman Show definitely movie. matters yeah. uh, that we're drinking out of the uncertain detective cups. Mm -hmm. mm. mm. <laughs> that's good. All right, well, we'll be right back. This episode of The Uncertain Artist is sponsored by Le Pichet, one of Seattle's great restaurants. In fact, it was recently featured in the New York Times list of the top 25 restaurants in Seattle. And if you've been, you don't need me to tell you what a lovely place it is. If you haven't, well, you're in for a treat. Le Pichet is a 32-seat French bistro and bar located in the heart of Pike Place Market, specializing in French regional cuisine and wine. The food is extraordinary but myself i don't enjoy eating out no matter how good the food unless i feel comfortable in the restaurant i'm collaborative by nature and i love the cozy we're all on this planet together vibe that you get at le pichet from the beautiful room to the extraordinary staff to the loyal clientele le pichet has been with us for 23 years and it's as good as ever and we're back so uh, I ran into Ezra on the way into the studio here, and and we were talking about a, a serious topic, really the topic of mental mental health and mental illness. And uh, both of us have worked on that artistically. I wrote a memoir about my own experience as a mental health patient uh, back in the late '70s, and then of course you've got a lot of work that references your your mother. Um, yeah, I, I mean I know that one of the things that and I think I, I saw this in, in, in the piece that you did with ArtZone years ago, but just the, maybe I'll just kick things off, the appalling lack of spending on mental health here in Washington State. Uh, yeah. Any comments on that or anything related to that topic? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an ailment of our society, not being able to care for humanity adequately, mm. even close to adequately. Um. So it's it's a reflection of our priority system, something that we all have to actively engage in, uh, heroically forge into the difficult conversations. Um, I find that exciting, oddly enough. I also find it healing in regards to the relationship that I have had and what has turned into as I've grown up the conversation or what's healing trying to have the conversation having the conversation in regards to my mother in regards to um just her role in my life fading away and her connection to me both in having conversations with her in knowing how she is has faded away um so I'm trying to understand those things and uh, I've realized that through my own endeavors to try and understand those things and showing those things to other people, we create uh, a support group of sorts, mm -hmm. showing others that we can engage in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Because like so many things, 
beginning by talking about it is a really nice starting mm -hmm. point, something that we can probably all enter in at. I, you know, I think the most meaningful thing that one of, I mean, one of the most meaningful things of any work I've ever done in any medium is having parents come up to me, having read my book about a, a myself as uh, experiencing mental illness in my early twenties and telling me that it was really helpful for them with uh, a, a niece or a son or a daughter who, that, that I, that my work helped them understand what was going on inside the experience of of their their child essentially yeah um and I, i'm just imagining that that your work portraying your mother's struggles that maybe you've instigated some of those same kind of conversations completely yeah um that is both a rewarding and heavy uh interaction but is one that happens all the time around this work um it's astounding to me how much uh, it affects all of us, not just in this country, across this whole world. Mm -hmm. um, it's a part of our lives in so many ways, and um, we don't allow ourselves to talk about it. We, through trauma, through experience, through lack of example, um, just shut a lot of that away, hide it try and maintain mm -hmm. and um and, and yet the arts is well the arts is the perfect place for many of us to uh, express uh things that are kind of unexpressible in, in other ways which which increases or i believe is really a a, a mentally healing thing and definitely uh, to do the work that we do it, it helps us to avoid or to to join in with others where we might be just stuck inside our own tormented heads with yeah. this stuff. Yeah. I think I've always thought about that in, uh, in regards to my mother, especially as her imbalance and her grew as I got older, um, it's just maintaining that sense of purpose, maintaining that sense of, uh, attachment to community, attachment to loved ones. Um, because so many of our, darkest urges kind of cause us to go inward and feel yeah. alone and just isolate. Um, and it may be hard at times to act against that, but um, it's one of the most simple ways that we can just allow ourselves to be cared for and to care about ourselves. When you, uh, I, I've heard you talk about the the, the name of the piece that we're specifically referencing is, I'm going to get it wrong, For My Mother. Mother, for you, I made Mother this. Mother, for you, I made this, yeah. And I've heard you talk about that as a, a gift to your mother. Yeah. Which is what art making is, right? It's gift giving. Um, and then as it intersects with commerce, sometimes of necessity, um, and that's where the real struggle is the, uh, of being an artist in our society, right? Is it, it's not that hard to think of yourself as a gift giver, uh, both to yourself and to to whoever you know is participating in the work. But it is hard to to come to terms with, well, how do I do this in the world of commerce? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with having to think that way, uh, but it is difficult. How have you uh, skateboarded through that maze? Um, by diversifying myself. Uh, you know, we, we briefly touched on kind of my, my pathway in dance, but I have probably 10 other pathways and maybe not all of them are quite as established as starting dance at four, but they begin essentially with ceramics at seven and then kind of move forwards there. And so I have many, many uh, creative outlets and pathways in my life that have been going on for a very long time. Um, and as I've grown up, I've found, uh, in addition to the joys that come from collaboration with others, the joy of collaborating, combining different art forms is what is really interesting to me. Not only in a, I'm learning something new, but, uh, in the grander idea of, maybe I'm adding something to the canon of creativity outside of me as well, too, possibly affecting others in their 
experiences of it and how they look at it. I can say in rehearsal, your approach is so specific and unique that it definitely not only informs the work, but moves the needle a little bit in terms of what we think of ourselves as doing and how we're able to do it. I, I just flashed on some of the films that I've seen in your work are, I just will say, I'm incredibly jealous of how extraordinarily good they are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think as more time is going by, um, I'm noticing the value of, of film. I've always known that there was value in it. I'm starting to notice how it can make my life a little easier as a performer. Um, I don't necessarily want to believe in the idea that uh, film can be a substitution for me, but it definitely acts as an adequate uh, kind of portfolio piece to, to give someone a more fleshed out idea of what's happening. Um, so, Wanting to be an avid documenter of my creativity, I think, helps me have a, a good starting point for making things that have lots of interesting stuff inside of them. Um, but also just opening up more doorways for where the creativity can go. Uh, allowing myself to say things to the public, to um, my mother, uh possibly setting goals for myself. Um, how can I be honest through these mediums in some way that is interesting and challenging to me? Yeah, uh, there we go. Well, that... I want to, I want to get onto the episode a little well, bit. Well, well, that's exactly okay, where I was go, going. Go, that's go, exactly, go. exactly where I was going. Well, speaking of filmed pieces of dance, uh, I wanted to talk about episode 19 and specifically the scene that Ezra's in. So my first question was for you, which is the genesis of that dance piece is uh, ostensibly one of uh, Megan's notebooks where this dance is described called Fits and Starts. Now, I'm going to assume that that's a real notebook that, that was really written in. Am I correct? Uh, it's, I think so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Charlie introduces that in an earlier episode yeah. where he's reading out of the notebook, yeah. and, and then we see uh, you and Megan enacting this as Charlie reads the description of the dance. I was looking through your old notebooks, and I found this. Fits and starts is a hard-working dance. As if you've been ordered to dance without stopping. As if you're on an assembly line and can't stop or the machine will glitch. A kind of dance with fits and starts, with jumps and kicks, with swaying and tripping and falling and standing still. It's about how can we build something together with clumsiness and with grace. But notebooks can fool us. Saving things can fool us, as if we can stop loss. Everything will escape us. Memories, like matter, cannot be created any more than they can be destroyed. They can only be dropped and picked up, lost and found. Either way, they're valuable. How how was that collaboration uh, with with Megan and with Charlie and with the Notebook or whatever it was? Um, it's fun. It's always fun. Uh, I think that there's a lot of uh, spontaneity that's contained inside of that, mm -hmm. which is intentional to try and keep all of us fresh and mm -hmm. not overworked inside of where it is. Uh, maybe some of us feel that we're overworked despite. Either way, um, <laughs> it's unavoidable, but uh, it's fun. Well, yeah, well, one of the things about that is most of the time with uh, The Uncertain Detective, stuff's pretty heavily scripted and there's not much improvisation or changing of things. My background, my roots are in generative performance, so creating in the moment. It was a, it was purposefully, you know, let's see what happens kind of afternoon knowing that we had Charlie and Megan and Ezra who are old pros at it. Um, and for me, just like the best kind of work as a director is essentially 
do your thing and I'll watch and it'll be great. <laughs> I don't get to do much anymore, but it, that was fun. I, I think the, the most delightful moment is, um, I don't know, I, I guess my impression is you guys are kind of moving slowly and, and then all of a sudden these, uh, you take like quadruple spins. Uh, there's a, where the two of you go and it's like, whoa, you know, this is, this is uh, for real. I, I don't know if that's the right so way to put someone it. Someone who's made work do you i would have a heart so I, I i say i'm collaborative by nature but when i say it i feel a little uh like a liar because i i i collaborate on my stuff and i am very uh good at working with other people on my stuff i can't step into other people's stuff and be the the collaborative follower uh, it's just not my i'm not good at it it's and uh, you're able to do both um how is how 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 come <laughs> you know i think it's a one balances the other for me um if it's something that i'm generating i love to have control of it if somebody else has asked me to step in on something i love somebody else knowing what they want to have happen i only hope that i can execute their idea to the fullest um and to just like have those two kind of balance each other out, you know, uh, is very satisfying for me. Um, I have a lot of love for uh, making those that I collaborate with happy, as long as I'm also happy too. Mm. I think that's been a little bit of a learned quality, so maybe not entirely through my artistic, but definitely as I'm getting older, you have to be happy and I have to be happy. And are you able to at times feel like you're in it? Like I'm doing, I, I'm doing what I'm here to do in life. Like I'm not striving to get to a point where I can do what I want to be able to do, but I'm actually doing it. Are you able to feel that? Uh, yeah. yeah. When did that start to happen for you that you could feel that? Um, I think unknowingly that's been going on for a very long time. I think having creative parents who um, who pointed me at so many creative outlets, mm. uh, I think that creativity, you know, maybe bronze casting wasn't the most interesting thing to me, but then clay comes along and then, um, you know, sports is allowed to be in there, athleticism, dance, like all of these competitive, you know, like all these different elements, like give, feed you in different ways. And um, having them all there, just uh, fills out that pot and gives you so much to work with as, as time goes by. Are you always working on something? Or yeah, is it, yeah. so what are you working on now? Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm working on completing a 25 foot by 11 foot, uh, basically paper poster that's hand painted um, that says free the youth. Uh, it's going to be a, a wall hanging tapestry for a show that I'm uh, going to be doing in July of 2024. Where will that be? That's going to be at Nimoto Gallery in downtown Seattle in between uh, on 3rd Avenue in between Union and Pike. They came to you. You sat up one morning and thought, I want to be in a gallery. Let me Google galleries. How did this come about? Um, this is a group of creatives and artists who organized the punk rock flea market. And through Restore Seattle, they uh, applied for vacant downtown space and were supported to have that space. Um, I started asking them what they were going to be doing with the space when uh, it wasn't punk rock flea marketing, which happens maybe four times a year for a couple of days. Use, the space used to be a Rite Aid, so it's a very large space. And they... This is where? Uh, 3rd Avenue in between Union and Pike in okay. downtown. Okay. Um, a very chaotic area. Yeah. But uh, it has uh, a feeling that I have heard echoed by other people in other metropolitan cities at earlier points in history. You know, what it was like to be in the chaos of downtown New York at different times in Manhattan, mm -hmm. in the chaos of other Detroit and other cities. Um, so there's a little bit of a allure about that, even though there's chaos going on around you, because ultimately I have a massive amount of space that I get to 
have access to 24 7. that's great and i um am painting gigantic posters down there right now yeah. uh yeah i i was gonna well I'm, I'm listening to all the different uh areas of of art that you're that you're involved in and then what you said about your parents on uh, really intriguing many many artists i think have a parental message in their head that they're fighting which is like you why are you wasting your time doing this but it sounds like you might have really positive parental messages in your head that say go 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 is, is that right definitely i think if anything when i started to express interest in playing baseball and more uh, conventional sporting activities that's where the like the tiniest hairs of disappointment started to creep in. Like I was straying away from creativity or I was rebelling against my parents and their kind of like creative outlets because neither of them were particularly interested in the competitive aspects of sports. I think my parents, growing up, there was definitely a, you should never be doing this for money. Mm. Uh, art is pure kind of feeling, oh. mm. uh, which is, damaging to, to, to have to digest. And then, you know, then I'm an adult and the questions are, well, how are you going to make any money? Mm. You know, because, uh, which I understand as a parent, because as you, as your kids get older, that becomes like your main concern. Mm -hmm. Like, are they going to be okay? Yeah. And it starts to become a financial question. Um, yeah. And that's the end of my story on that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess we could have a whole podcast with many, many different guests on what what message did your parents give you around yeah, uh, yeah. around the arts? Yeah. So let me ask, uh, and then we'll get to a question from our audience. Um, how to put this? Uh, what have you noticed in, in in over the last X number of years that has gotten better or gotten worse um, for for you and other other artists in, in in this community how has it gotten easier or harder or more distant or more close yeah um you know i can i can only speak from my kind of vantage point as as the person that i am in the years that i've been here um i would say that i see a lot of want and need to kind of transform and um in this community, in this region, it feels like we need to uh, grow inside of ourselves um, more fortitude to forge into the difficult conversations, um, to not so easily jump to ostracizing or isolating. Um, I think we can all do so much to respect each other and to engage in dialogue with each other even though it may be difficult even though it may hurt even though there may be trauma associated with that but i think as a community especially as an arts community um, we only have so many avenues for where support comes from for us and uh, we have to um, hear each other and uh, we have to be able to engage in that conversation. And I think that uh, my experience in some part in the Northwest is that we are a little bit afraid of engaging that conversation. And I would say that in contrast to the East Coast. So in the world of the arts, can you point to models, pathways, mentors who you feel like, oh, that's an avenue I hope we can go down yeah either living or dead yeah i i can point to models of that and i would um point that in uh old knowledge old knowledge that's already here indigenous knowledge mm. i would point that towards um kind of an understanding of how we function as a community and uh maybe pushing against the kind of isolation that capitalism kind of built into us the I must get mine um, I think when we can learn how to be more human towards each other we can grow more 
I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> well, it gave me a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, we have a question for Ezra from uh, an audience member. Is that right, Gravy? Yes, that is correct. Um, Alicia from Tacoma, Washington writes, you've done a lot of creative projects. Is there anything you haven't tried yet that you hope to do in the future? Yeah. Um, I haven't really let myself explore the possibilities of music and sound myself. Mm. I've commissioned composers. I've thoroughly enjoyed music for a very long time. Um, even at some points, I've sang a little bit when I was younger in synagogue. And as I've been older in being brought into my... Uh, my adopted family, which is a whole nother story, but I'm being invited to sing inside of that community. Um, and that is filling me with a lot of joy and therapy from making sound in various different ways, not necessarily for the need of performing, but just as a emotional healing uh, pro possibility. So music is something that um, hasn't really been allowed to be there too much by me and my own creative choices, but is creeping in ever so slightly. Good question, Alicia. Yeah. Um, well, what didn't we ask that uh, you were hoping we would ask today? Um, well, I guess I was, I was hoping that we could talk about uh, and, you know, this goes into many layers of things. Initially sending emails to me about, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of like get these pickup shots of taking our hats off. And, and it kind of made me uh, think about why we take our hats off when we come into a space. So just for perspective, the opening for this, those of you on YouTube, see there's an opening and originally it was going to be the arrival of, of me and of Joe and of our guests. And, uh, we nixed that because technically it's just too much work to do every week. Too much hat work but every we week. We did tell Ezra, be prepared for that. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm a pretty avid hat wearer. Um, I have, I have given some permission to some folks to, uh, ask me to remove my hat at times. And I have not afforded that permission to other folks, not, because I'm trying to be malicious or anything, but I just, I've loved hats ever mm -hmm. since I was a little kid quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a love that grows as my hair disappears. <laughs> it also becomes this like mask for the me that's underneath. But the question came across my mind of why do we remove our hats? Is it is it an etiquette thing? Is, is there something deeper? Was something that I actually, as I started to think about it, I almost wanted to just ask to, ask to you, Greg, because I feel like it's come up a few times throughout the work, not as like a, a judgment or a pushy, but just as like, a, this is what we do. I'm looking for a detective. I'm a, de I'm a detective. I'm a detective. So why? Why well, I'll just tell you what you made me think of. I was take I was in college and I was taking a class on uh, I can't remember what it was on, but we watched a Hitchcock film. It was a film class, and uh, the character puts the hat on the on the bed, and someone reacts with mm. fright and takes the hat off the bed. And mm -hmm. the professor was going on with a variety of mostly sexual um, reasons for why you can't have a hat on the bed. And I was I think I was a freshman. I never talked in class but at a certain point i just thought i had a brilliant idea and i raised my hand and i said maybe because if the hat's on the bed someone might sit on the hat and <laughs> and he just looked at me with absolute scorn like i still remember that yeah so <laughs> it wasn't provocative yeah, enough for him um but hats loom large in my in my mythology that's for sure and, and, and hats are often part of a dance it seems to me uh you know the, the hat and cane and, and there's a oh, right. there's an improv uh, uh game called it's literally called hats yeah and where people are the both performers are wearing hats and they try to grab the hat off off of uh, the other person yeah. kind of in a subtle unpredictable way which which is is about as close as improv gets to actually being a, a dance i mean i'm talking about com comedic improvisation yeah. not 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 movement improvisation 
Um, any comments about hats, the, the role of the hat in dance? Well, I think it's underutilized personally. And you bring up a good point with Fred Astaire and the like oh, yeah. and the, the cane and the hat. Mm. We get to look at Charlie Chaplin and, mm. and many other characters through time utilizing the hat. Um, I have felt that I'm in a, a modern day crusader for the hat in yeah. dance. You know, mm -hmm. I've just because my own self image appreciates what I look like better in a hat than <laughs> vice versa, even though I think I must accept who I am. It posed another question inside of myself of the kind of idea of like, we come into this space, we take our hats off. And I was like, well, what is this revealing about us? You know, why, why don't we take off everything mm. as we come into this space? Like, <laughs> how, how come just the hat? If in some cases, for some of us, it it reveals an under under self, under layer of self. Um, That's interesting because, I mean, we used to be a society where men wore hats. Yeah. Wore, wore hats. It, it, you never were out without one. Mm-hmm. And really, the, the thing that has lingered is the idea of taking your hat off when you go inside. Why is that what's lingered, given that most of us don't wear them anymore? And that is where we'll have to end today with it. We can keep talking, but uh, it's time for me to do our sign up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's a performance. And I, I almost blew it. <laughs> Applause. <laughs> You were trying so hard to get me to say, well, take your hat off. <laughs> I think you better explain that one for our audio. Oh, Ezra uh, took his hat off. And on top of it, can we see one more time? Is a uh, white, adorable little kitten uh, perched on top of his, shall we say, slightly balding head. And it's... Uh, it's been there the whole time and it looks fantastic well ezra thanks so much this was a treat and uh, thanks greg thanks we joe can, we can do it again and talk a lot a lot thank, about hats. Th thank you ezra and thanks for ending us with whimsical humor there which is Why not? a trademark here please join us next time for another episode of the uncertain artist and if you have a question we can ask our guest in a future episode or ask ourselves, drop it to us in the comments if you're watching on YouTube or email it to us. Our email is theuncertainartist at gmail.com. Also, save the date. Season 3 of The Uncertain Detective will premiere February 26th of 2024, 7 p.m. at the SIF Film Center right next door to Climate Pledge Arena. We will follow the screening with a live taping of this podcast, so come join us. Tickets are free and can be reserved through the Seattle International Film Festival website. We hope to see you there.